0: Well, thanks a lot, Dick. Everyone, you all have done a tremendous job. It's a tremendous aid as we sing, which is a crucial part of worship. And one thing I like to point out every now and then for folks is that if you study the context of Ephesians 5.18, one of the very first things that's listed in context as a product of the filling of the Spirit is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in worship to the Lord. And the whole context there is a corporate context, not just private context. And through the centuries, tremendous hymns have been written. We sing some of them uh, quite a bit, like a mighty fortress is our God and many others. And these grew out of individuals' uh, personal Understanding of the Scripture and reflection on the Scripture. One of the differences between what we often call older or traditional hymns versus some of the modern contemporary uh, music is that modern contemporary stuff tends to focus on personal, subjective experience. It's a lot of I, me, my. But if you look at the older hymns, especially hymns such as those written by Martin Luther, Isaac Watts, some of the Wesley's hymns, they indicate a tremendous. Uh, depth of reflection and theological understanding. Of course, there's a lot of older hymns that aren't very good theologically either. But the good ones show the the depth of these hymn writers' understanding of the scriptures and their understanding of doctrine. And so it is tremendous to continue to sing the old hymns, the good hymns, because this is, as it were, a heritage that is passed along from one generation to another. And I remember a year ago, our last summer, when they had the funeral for President Reagan, there was some tremendous hymn music played. And afterwards, a political uh, columnist named Peggy Noonan, Noonan, who I enjoy reading, uh, observed what a tremendous thing it was to hear the old hymns and the old patriotic songs. And that these things it, it, it need to be passed on from one generation to another. And what a tragedy it is that so many young people don't sing the patriotic songs in school anymore. And, they, and in churches, they, they disconnect from the old hymns. They just want to sing new stuff, which isn't as good either in its quality or in its theology, the music's not as good, and it does a disservice because we have this tremendous heritage of believers who have gone before, and this is a way that we recognize that we're in that same strand, that same stream of history. So it's great that we have these folks who are involved in the music and enhances our worship through song. Well, before we get started in our look at the Word, which is the focal point of all worship, is a study of the Word of God, so that we can understand how to think as God thinks and how to look at life as God looks at life. Uh, We need to make sure we have the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction in our teaching. So let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your Word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is in the light of your Word that we see light. Father, we pray now as we study Your Word that You would help us to understand the things that we study, that the Holy Spirit would drive these truths deep into our souls, that He might bring it to our memory in times of application, and that You would use Your Word to produce spiritual growth, spiritual strength in our lives, that we might be nourished and sustained by Your Word. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Living Word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are down in verse 8. Last week we started this as the second letter in the series of seven letters to seven congregations in Asia Minor. And each of these letters, they follow a pattern. There's an opening commission, which is an address to the specific congregation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then there's a character reference to some aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes out of the vision. In Revelation chapter 1, and each of these character attributes is specifically tied to reinforce the challenge or the uh, message of exhortation in each letter. There's a commendation in all but two of them, a praise for their spiritual advance, and then there's a condemnation in all but two of them, which is a warning about some serious spiritual flaw in the congregation. This second letter, the letter to Smyrna, contains no condemnation. There's a prescription or to recover, which, of course, is not in this letter. And then there's a call, which is a command to listen and apply. Let those who have an ear listen. And then there's a challenge, a personal promise of reward for every believer. So this, these seven letters reinforce the idea that believers need to become victorious. That is, in the Greek, nike or nikao. Nike is the verb for victory. Nikao is the verb for those who uh, gain victory, those who overcome the challenges of sin in the world system, those who advance to spiritual maturity. Those believers will have a place of special privilege, special uh, uh, position In the kingdom of God, we're in boot camp right now, and we need to learn to think that way. Every believer needs to recognize that that while there are many things in this life that are great fun, very enjoyable, and the Lord has given us a tremendous creation to enjoy, uh, the enjoyment of tremendous social life, the enjoyment and the challenge of working in whatever field that you're in, whatever your career is, whatever your area of function is, that's a tremendous challenge and joy for everyone. But all of this is secondary to spiritual growth because the training time that we have is short. It's just 40 or 50 years for most because most people don't get serious about their spiritual life till they're, Uh, in their twenties or thirties, and yet the time is short. We're given maybe three score and ten if we're fortunate. Most people today, life expectancy seems to head be, you know, north of eighty, but how much we actually remember once once we get there, well, that's a different story. And we need to make sure that we're there. The more, one of these days I'm going to develop a doctrine related to the senior believer. We'll just put it that way. Because I think that when we're young, and the older I get, the more I observe this, that when people are young, they have the energy to camouflage a lot of their carnality. But when you're older, you don't have it, and you start getting a little short-tempered, and you start seeing whether they really grew in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ all those years, or they didn't. And after 20-plus years as a pastor, I began to notice that there are some folks who either bail out or drop out when they get a little older. And there's others who it seems like they have really listened to the Word. They've been applying it. They've just been those sleeper believers. I didn't say sleeping believers. (laughs) I said sleeper believers. And all of a sudden, when they start getting into their senior years, all that tremendous spiritual growth that's been taking place over the years really kicks in and you begin to see the difference between those who have been just going along, going through the motions, uh, talking the talk, but they haven't really been applying it. It hasn't changed their soul because when you get to the tests of those golden years, they say they're golden because you need a lot of gold to get through them. But as you get there, and as we get there, it's it's not a pretty sight. I watch, see this more and more, and experience it a little more and more, and you think, well, you're just young. Yeah, well, you all know once you hit 50, it's all downhill. And uh, But the tests that come really do challenge how much doctrine there is in our soul. So we need to... Uh, focus on learning the Word and making that our priority. Well, there's a challenge there. Are we going to stick with it and persevere all the way to the end? And if we're an overcomer, then there's special privilege and position in heaven. So in verse 8 reads, to the angel that is the literally an angel as we've seen in our study, the angel is the officer of the court who is recording the evaluation of the Lord Jesus Christ for each congregation. And I believe there's an angel assigned to each congregation, and he is evaluating each congregation. And these evaluation reports, just like the ones we're studying in Revelation 2 and 3, will be part of the evaluation at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ. And so this angel is given a copy of the critique sheet. Of the evaluation report Just as each individual congregation here is given an evaluation report And the purpose for these uh, evaluation reports being recorded D7 and not some others Is because these represent the predominant trends of congregations down through the church age You can pick One of these and it will fit a congregation at any time in its life You may know of a congregation that's 50 years old or 100 years old Or some are 150 years or more And in different stages of that congregation's life You could probably fit it into one of these seven pictures So there is an opening address to the angel of the church in Smyrna And here I have a map It's a little, may look a little fuzzy to you, but that's simply because I had to, I had to blow it up a good bit so that, uh, we could, uh, see the western coast of Asia Minor or modern Turkey. And if you look, here is Ephesus right here, and then 35 miles north of Ephesus, at the base of the Gulf of Smyrna, which comes down this way from the from the northwest to the southeast, at the base of that Gulf is the city of Smyrna, which had quite an ancient history, went back at least 2,000 BC. Uh, the uh, Greeks came in, starting in about 1,000 BC, and then the Ionian Greeks came in, and by 190 BC they began to see that Rome was on the horizon. They erected a temple to the god of Rome, and so Rome began, entered into alliance with the uh, Smyrnans against uh, the Lydians and the Greeks and others in the area, and that led to the eventual conquest of the area uh, with this alliance with Smyrna. The city of Smyrna itself had a ridge line that encircled the city, and the public buildings were built at the top of that ridge line, And at one end of the ridge line there was a temple to Zeus, and at the other end, a temple to Sibylle. And then there was a road that ran from one to the other, and there were various temples and public office and administration buildings that were built there. The beautiful, classical Greek architecture. and when, I can just imagine when you would see that western sun beginning to set over the Aegean and reflect off of that beautiful marble, that it had a, a brilliant glow, and it was called the Crown of Smyrna. And there is a play in this particular epistle, there is a promise of a crown of life to those who would be martyred, to those who would stand firm until the end, and so it's a play on that background and that terminology used to describe the city of Smyrna. First thing that we're said that is said here of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his attributes is that he's called the first and the last. Two things are pulled out of Revelation 117. Uh, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The first phrase, the first and the last, emphasizes, as I said last time, Christ's infinity as God. He is the First and the last. There are various Old Testament passages that ascribe this same phrase to God. Isaiah forty four, six, thus says the Lord the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So there it is applied to the God the Father is the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, that's the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of the armies, literally. I am the first and I am the last besides me. There is no God, so it emphasizes His the fact that He was there at the beginning when there was nothing else, and He is still in existence at the end when everything else is gone. It emphasizes His infinitude. Also, in passages such as Isaiah 48, 48-12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am He, I am the first. I am also the last. And then in Revelation one seventeen that is applied, which is where this gets its reference, and again at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verse 13. This title, the first and the last, reinforces the eternality of God, and it's appropriate for the Smyrnian believers, because what we will see in this particular Chapter in this particular letter, is that they are going to go through some intense persecution, and there will be a large number in that congregation that will not survive. They will be arrested, they will be tortured, and they will be put to death. One of the things that happened in the history of Smyrna, because of their alliance with Rome, they had... Been given several temples that, or they had erected several temples to emperor worship. And once a year, starting in the reign of Diocletian, they had to reaffirm their loyalty to the emperor. And they had to go into the temple and they had to say that uh, Caesar was Lord and they had to burn incense to Caesar. And this was a strong. Theological statement Now there were some of course Who thought well it doesn't mean anything I'm just going to go along to get along And not worry about it But no one in the ancient church Took it that way There might have been a few But the vast majority understood That if you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ You had to take a stand And you could not ever say That Caesar was Lord And so if you did not have a certificate On your person when you were stopped and questioned, saying that you had affirmed your worship of Caesar, then you would be sent to jail, and you would which was just a short period of time for for torture before you were executed. That was a death penalty offense and so there's a warning that we 'll see in a couple of verses that there would be an intense period of of testing of, of Uh, testing that would last for 10 days. The second reference, so the first title, in in summary, the first title indicates that Jesus Christ as the first and the last would always be present at every instant of the suffering, no matter what would happen. There is also another emphasis, and that is that He was, because he is the first and the last, he will outlast any and all creaturely opposition. That Rome would never be able to destroy the church, even if it wiped out the local congregation in Smyrna, the church itself would go on, that because Jesus Christ is the first and the last, no human government would ever be able to destroy Christianity. Now, the next phrase that comes up is the phrase, the one who was dead and came to life. The one who was dead and came to life. Now, here it's important to pay a little attention to the Greek grammar. The word that is translated was here, the word was dead, is the Greek verb genomai, plus the noun for dead. I should have underlined the was rather than the dead. The genomai is an aorist passive indicative. An aorist passive indicative. Now, the significance of this is that the aorist tense is understood as a culminative aorist. That means that the, the, the aorist simply summarizes the past action as something that happened in the past, but it can have three different emphases. It can either indicate the beginning of a past action, it can just simply summarize the past action, or it views the past action as being complete. And that's what a culminative heiress does. It emphasizes the completion of the action. And so what the title, the way the title should be translated is the one who became dead. See, Genomai isn't the verb to be, a me. It is a word that means to come into existence or something happened. And so it should be translated that he became dead. It is a completed action. It's a passive voice indicating that he received the action of the verb. He received death. And this reinforces what Jesus said on the cross, that he did not die from the suffering. He did not die from the torture. He didn't die from the crucifixion itself. He gave up his spirit when he had completed the work of salvation. He simply bowed his head and said, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. So he became dead, It is a he received the action of death, and then he is the one who came to life. And this is the verb za'o. The verb za'o is also in the aorist active indicative. It means to live or to have life, and it means he was alive or he, uh, building off of the verb before he came to life. Again, it's a culminative aorist emphasizing a finished or completed act in past time. So there are two titles here for the Lord Jesus Christ. The first emphasizes his infinitude, that he is infinite with respect to time, he's infinite with respect to power, he's infinite with respect to knowledge. So whenever you go through trials, whenever you go through adversity, whenever you go through any, Suffering in life, whatever it may be, whether it's physical suffering, whether it's uh, pressure from a job, whether it is simply the exigencies of life. You go through various downturns economically. You go through uh, medical problems. You may be involved in uh, natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, whatever it may be. We're living in the devil's world, but we recognize that above and beyond everything in creation, is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are, are eternal. And Jesus Christ is the one who said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the first title emphasizes His continual presence, uh, even when we go through trials, and the second title indicates that he is one who has gone through extreme adversity and suffering himself. He is not just some deity who is sitting out there untouched by human experience. Uh, Unlike any other religious system, in all of human history, Christianity has a God who became a man. We have a God who entered into the full experience of humanity. We have a God who learned to be a carpenter. He sweated and He strained. He worked physically. He has experienced in His humanity all of the physical uh, difficulties that we face, the physical suffering. When He went through all of that "...physical suffering prior to the cross. It wasn't because the physical suffering itself was redemptive. It wasn't that all of the pain that he went through as he was beaten and as he was whipped and as he was tortured within an inch of his life, that that suffering had anything to do with his uh, salvific work on the cross." It is that I think part of it was to show that despite all the extreme physical suffering that he went through, it was nothing compared to what he went through spiritually when he bore in his body the imputed sins of the world. When the sins were poured out upon him, he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And until that point he had said nothing. And that is just to point out the contrast between the intense physical pain, which you and I could barely endure, if we could endure it at all, and and he didn't even utter a sound. He went through the whole thing uh, like, a lamb before, like a lamb before it shears his dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And only when our sins hit him did he scream out in agony. That it reinforces what took place during those three hours on the cross. But he is a God who is... Touched by the same adversity that we've gone through. Now we come to the basic commendation in verse 9. Verse 9 gives us the basic commendation. It begins, I know your works. Now if you're using a New American Standard or an NIV, it doesn't have that. But the phrase, your works, is is there in the majority text. It's also part of uh, there, in if you're in the King James or New King James, based on the TR. And it's there in every other one of these uh, short evaluation reports, so I think that it should be there. It was left out during as part of some copious error, overlooked it, but it should be there. The term works is not specific. It's a general term. It is simply a summation of their production in the Christian life. Jesus Christ is viewing them as the judge of the church, as we have seen, the priest judge of the church, and he is saying, I know everything that's gone on in your church. The verb here for know is oida, which shows that he has a complete knowledge. It emphasizes his omniscience. It is not an acquired knowledge. It is an intuitive knowledge related to his omniscience. He knows immediately and completely everything that has gone on in the congregation. So he begins by saying, I know your production. You can't hide anything from me. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. It doesn't matter what it looked like you were doing. I know exactly what characterized your Christianity. I can therefore be the honest, objective evaluator. I know your application. And then this is followed in the text by the... Greek uh, chi, or the Greek conjunction chi, which in most translations is translated as a simple conjunction. I know your works and your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And that has missed the point of the text. There is uh, a use of chi that is prevalent in the, uh, in Revelation in John's writings And it's called The Ascensive Use of Kai, And it fits this kind of construction I know your works And then he's going to explain Which works, which production he's emphasizing So it should be translated I know your works Even your tribulation And poverty That's what he's focusing on. Everything else is secondary, and we'll get to it. He knows your work specifically, or even your tribulation. And the word for tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis. The Greek word thlipsis, which means literally to crush, to press, to compress, or to squeeze. Hence, it's translated in various ways as tribulation. I don't like using the word tribulation here for obvious reasons. You get it confused with the tribulation, with that seven-year tribulation that comes after the rapture. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the adversity or the affliction that these believers were enduring. He's talking about the external pressure of the negative circumstances of life whatever they may be, whether they're they're caused by political oppression, whether they're caused by the opposition from the Jews that were in the area that uh, uh, claimed to be Jews, as it says, but they were not. It says, I know your works, even your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but a synagogue of Satan. So what we see in this verse at the end is that there's two areas where they were coming under uh, opposition. One area came from the political system of Rome because of their failure to uh, bow their, uh, their heads in allegiance to Caesar as God. And the other came from the large Jewish community that had existed in Smyrna since at least the second century B.C., so this large Jewish community was very much opposed to the Christians, and in many cases it was the Jews that were stirring up the Roman political power to oppress and persecute the Christians. That's why they're connected here. So John writes, or actually the Lord Jesus Christ evaluates by saying, I know your works, even your tribulation, that is the uh, various forms of adversity that you're going through And your poverty And the word for poverty here is a different word Let me skip ahead a minute I had some other verses there Here we go The word for poverty in this passage is this first word on the screen tokeia, P-T-O-C-H-E-I-A Tokia. Now, there's another word in the Greek for poverty, and that's the second word, which is penes. The difference is that the word here refers to a complete, abject poverty. It's talking about people who have lost everything. They don't have a home. They don't have material possessions at all. The only thing they have is the clothes on their back. And this is a result of the persecution and oppression that they were enduring. It's in contrast to penes, which is another word for poverty, and this refers to those who are poor and helpless, but they're not in abject poverty. They may have a place to live. They may have some clothes. They may have uh, bare, uh, the, the bare necessities of life, but they have something. Whereas those who are tokea have absolutely nothing. And so in this verse the Lord says, I know your adversity and your abject poverty, that you have lost everything. And they've lost everything because they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and they refused to deny Him. Now, when the Lord says, I know your tribulation, your adversity, we should be reminded of a few verses. John 16:33. as the Lord was giving last-minute instructions to his disciples, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. That is, as you're living in the cosmic system, surrounded by those who are uh, politically opposed to Christianity, surrounded by those who have rejected God, uh, surrounded by those who have rejected the Creator God, you will constantly come under opposition, under persecution, and under adversity. However, in me you may have peace. Now, it's a subjunctive... Mood in the verb there Indicating that it is potential And it's dependent on the believer's volition As to whether or not he is applying doctrine In order to have peace And then the Lord concludes Be of good cheer I have overcome the world Because Jesus Christ overcame the world There's our same verb Nikao That we have in the overcomer Or victorious passages At the end of each of these letters That We overcome the cosmic system as we advance and mature in the Christian life. As we apply doctrine, we learn to have peace even in the midst of all of the things that Satan throws at us via the world system. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is personally attacking. But Satan is the head of the cosmic system. He's developed many different ways in which to attack the thinking of humanity in order to blind us to the truth of the gospel and in order to distract Christians from advance in the spiritual life. So the Lord said, that, and reminded the disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, thipsis, adversity, but be of good cheer, that is the... Inner happiness that we share with the Lord Jesus Christ as we apply doctrine. I have overcome the world. Romans five three we understand some of the uh, dynamics of adversity in the Christian life. Paul says, and not only that, but we that is we maturing believers also glory in tribulations in adversities, knowing. And here we it is a. Uh, causal, adverbial participle Of Gnosko Because we know That adversity produces perseverance Now that's the same thing That James says in James 1, 2 through 2-4 Adversity is not For the believer, it's not that we love Suffering, it's not like we're we're just uh, wrapped up in suffering, we're masochistic, and every time we get a little adversity, we, we enjoy the adversity for adversity's sake. That, that, that's part of the philosophy of Stoicism in the ancient world. That's not what this is saying. We don't love adversity for adversity's sake, but adversity is that which the Lord uses to give us the opportunities to trust Him, to see Him work, to see Him supply our needs in the midst of the most egregious circumstances, and through that the Holy Spirit produces spiritual growth and maturity in our lives and prepares us so that when the kingdom comes, we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were ever, um, now I wasn't there, so I'm just speaking from academic knowledge. My dad was there, but if you ever went through Marine boot camp, Then you might not have enjoyed at the time what your drill instructor was doing to you But when you came out the other end and went into combat Then you understood the value of it And if you had some insight, perhaps you were smart enough to realize that in boot camp, what you were going through, the adversity you were going through, was going to have a positive result. While you didn't enjoy the adversity in and of itself, you understood that if you didn't go through it and master those situations, then you would be in trouble when you came out the other end and actually went into combat. That's the idea in Romans 5, 3, as well as in James chapter 1. One of the other reasons that we go through this kind of adversity Is so that we can comfort other believers As you go through certain kinds of adversity in life As you mature and you get up into your 50s or your 60s And you have gone through this using the Word of God Applying the faith rest drill Applying all of the problem solving devices That gives you an opportunity That when you see that same kind of thing happening With some younger believer Some young couple in their 30s just getting started, all of a sudden they go through a situation where they uh, lose everything that they have or they uh, go into bankruptcy, uh, they have a health problem, uh, the wife or the husband comes down with a cancer or some other serious injury, then you've gone through that and you've seen the Lord work in your life and you can be a, an encouragement to them. That's what the Scripture teaches when it says we're to encourage one another. You can come along and give them that practical uh, advice from your perspective of how the Lord worked through you, and that is an encouragement to someone else. And this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians one four. That God is the one who comforts us in all our adversity, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, that's part of the dynamic that goes on within the body of Christ, not the kind of artificial stuff that usually happens in so many churches where they set up a lot of programs and try to pair somebody over here with somebody over here, and it's what I would call a top-down organization where the pastor or the, uh, usually they have elders and they're trying to control this dynamic in the congregation. Well, it, it, if you've got a maturing church where the people are learning the word and growing and you've got the proper dynamics of relationship within the church, this naturally flows or falls out as a result of their spiritual growth. And it loses that sense of that programic, uh, artificial Kind of structure that you get in in many congregations, or to encourage one another, another passage second corinthians eight two Paul says that in great trial of affliction, now this relates to their to their poverty, and he uses this word in reference to the Macedonian church, that in a great trial or test of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And that's in reference to their giving to uh, supply sustenance for the church in uh, Jerusalem. And I always thought this was a tremendous uh, passage of encouragement that they gave out of their deep poverty. That's tokea again. It is their abject poverty. They didn't have anything. Nevertheless, they still gave in order to... Uh, supply the needs for those other believers in Jerusalem. Second Corinthians eight nine, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became what? Tokeia. Po- he became poor, abject poverty, that through his poverty we might become rich. Is that he? He gave up everything on the cross when he. Receive the punishment, the judicial imputation for our sins And we come to Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 And here we have our major command or challenge in the passage Do not fear Do not be afraid Fear is at the core of the human experience Ever since the fall of Adam in the garden When God came into the garden, after they had eaten of the fruit, they ran, they hid, they tried to clothe themselves, and God says, why did you run and hide? And He said, we hid because we were afraid. That was the first emotional byproduct of the sin nature. And that's the basic orientation of the sin nature, is fear. We're afraid that we're not going to get anything. We're afraid that we're going to lose what we already have, uh, fear is the sense that we will never have what we should have, that we will never be what we could be. Fear is the sense that whatever we do have we're going to lose. Fear is the sense that something's going to happen and we're going to be destroyed and any any bad number of bad things could happen to us. The thing is, we never know what will happen there's always this underlying sense of, of anxiety or, or worry or fear about Life itself, that somehow we may lose everything and we may uh, be without any hope. It generates uncertainty, it generates insecurity, anxiety, and as a result we lose confidence in life. Often it's simply the uncertainty of life that we fear. Man wants to have stability, wants to have security, wants to have a sense of significance in life, and yet... Without a relationship to God, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you accomplish, there is still no certainty because we live in a fallen world and anything could happen. So there's this always this underlying note of fear in the fallen soul. We learn from Scripture that the more things we fear, the more things we will fear. Fear eats up our Christian life. The more things you give yourself to fear... The more things, the more fear will control you. The more you're controlled by fear, the more fear will shut down your spiritual life. And as you are controlled by fear and its related sins, such as worry and anxiety, the more you're controlled by these sins, the less you will be able to trust in God. So fear and its related sins are the most devastating assault On the faith rest drill and on the believers advance to spiritual maturity So the Lord says and comforts them by commanding them It's a present active imperative indicating that this should uh, continuously characterize their life A present imperative indicates standard operating procedure It emphasizes an ongoing character quality in the life of the believer so they are told, do not fear any of those things So it's a broad category, any of those things Whatever it is that you, your area of fear Whatever seems to worry you the most uh, For some it's one thing, for others it's something else Whatever it is, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer Now, this was originally directed to this congregation in Smyrna But there's clearly application there for us Because we don't know what we may go through What adversity we may face And what the Lord says to us is Don't fear any of the adversity that you may face Whatever the hobgoblins are in your closet Whatever the monsters are under your bed That come out in the dark Do not fear any of those things And then the Lord says to that congregation Indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison There will be a Period of persecution And the devil is behind it Now he's not saying that Satan personally Is going to come down and engineer this Uh, Satan is not Omnipresent He can't be everywhere He stands in the throne room of God accusing believers, but he uses his system, the fallen angels as well as the cosmic system to carry out his deeds. So when the Bible talks about the devil here, it's not talking about him personally, it's talking about him as the head of this entire system that is in opposition to God. The word devil is the Greek word diabolos, which means a slanderer or accuser, one who is verbally assaulting someone, or in this case, one who is simply assaulting someone. This is the Greek name for the fallen angel we call Lucifer, who declared his independence from God and desired to usurp the power and authority of God and to take to himself the prestige and the position of God. Uh, This is found in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. But in his failure, because he failed at the cross and was strategically defeated at the cross, he seeks to attack unbelievers by blinding them to the truth and to attack believers by distracting them from dependence upon God, studying the Word, and he seeks to destroy the testimony that believers will develop against him in the angelic conflict. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he is our adversary who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is always out there through his various methods seeking to destroy the testimony of believers. But the role of the believer in the church age is to be a witness to the grace, the integrity, and the love of God now these believers are warned that they might be thrown into prison that they may be tested and the word for testing is the greek word peirazo it's a second person plural second person plural is well in the south we talk about y'all but the plural of y'all is all y'all so all y'all are going to be tested the whole congregation. The subjunctive mood emphasizes the possibility or the potential of testing. It's not sure that it's going to happen to every single one, but for every believer we will go through different categories of adversity in the Christian life. It says that, they, they, that you might be tested. And the word for testing, this word perazo, indicates an evaluation procedure. And testing is the means by which we are advanced in spiritual life. We go through all kinds of tests. We go through tests related to people. We go through tests related to circumstances. We go through tests related to our own sin nature. Often those are the worst. We just get in positions where we're really drawn to handle the situation through different kinds of sins, whether they're mental attitude sins such as anger or resentment or bitterness uh, desire for revenge or whether they, they're through sins of the tongues, we're gonna, uh, sins of the tongue, we're gonna slander someone or, or gossip about someone or whether it's through some sort of overt, uh, acts or through abuse or through, uh, uh, physical intimidation or some other form of physical sin. Uh, that's often the test, is are we going to control the sin nature? We're going to apply doctrine so we don't sin, as opposed to yielding to the sin nature, which is always the simplest course of action. Now, I want you to note that this verb is, a, is an aorist passive subjunctive, and the next verb, that you may be tested and you will have, that's the future active indicative of Echo. The future active indicative, which indicates the indeterminate future, but it still has a sense of immediacy. It's going to be soon. It's not talking about some, something that may happen in the next generation or the next generation of the church. It's talking about that specific congregation. They may be tested or evaluated And they will have adversity for ten days. Now, that has brought up a a series of different uh, interpretations. What were the ten days? And there are a number of different options that have been suggested. Now, three of these options, I think, just don't quite hold water. And these are... That this ten, day, ten days were ten periods of persecution. You'll find a number of different systems that people set forth going back into Roman history and some will identify the first persecution as under Nero. And then there were some subsequent persecution. They'll trace it all the way down to Domitian right before the uh, coming of uh, uh, right before Constantine uh, be- became the emperor and became a believer. The trouble is, number one, that kind of a breakdown doesn't fit the sense of immediacy that this passage has for that congregation. Number two, it violates the rule of uh, literal interpretation. Let me see if I no, I don't have a slide up here for uh, literal interpretation. Let me give you a definition for literal interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. I'll put this up on a slide next week. Let me go over that again. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, in other words, when you just look at the text and we read that that the Lord says you will have uh, persecution for ten days, what's the most likely understanding there? That you'll have tribulation for ten, 24-hour periods. So why try to make it something else? Now, the definition goes on to say that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning. word like day should be understood as a 24-hour day. Unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages, uh, perhaps we have a phrase of ten days used to mean... Ten periods of time somewhere. We don't. A number of people have attempted that, but if you look at all those passages, they can all be understood as periods of ten literal twenty-four hour periods, ten consecutive days. So there's no related passages that talk about ten days as a peri- period of ten periods of time, or ten, uh, or, uh, or as a symbolic term for just just a lengthy period of time. So unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicates clearly otherwise, the problem is we can't pinpoint which ten days this was, but we don't need to. We do know that during that period of time, in the period from about 86 to 95 A.D., there were numerous outbreaks of regional persecutions, and this could have referred to any of those. Just because we can't go back and say, well, this happened between November 1st and November 10th in 95 AD doesn't mean that it's not referring to a literal 10-day period. And that seems to be, under the principle of literal interpretation, what was going on here. That they were being warned that there was, they, they had this uh, intense 10-day period on the horizon. Now the purpose for this is testing. And testing is what the Lord uses to bring about maturity. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Same word, the noun form though. perasmas, various tests. And then you have again a causal participle of genomai, I mean, genosko. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces. Endurance, But let endurance have its perfect, teleos, uh, its maturing work, that you may be perfect, that is mature and complete, lacking nothing. We can't get from here to spiritual maturity without going through adversity tests. Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We can't avoid it. The issue is, are we going to look at those adversities as a challenge to the doctrine in our soul and look at that as an opportunity to apply the word so that we can use that adversity as a springboard to spiritual growth, as a means of increasing the momentum of our spiritual advance, or are we going to look at that as just another obstacle that gets in the way of our accomplishing our agenda in life as opposed to God's agenda? So the Lord is saying to them that, and warning them that some of you may be thrown into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have testing for ten days. Now there's a whole dynamic I want to get into related to testing and adversity. But we'll have to wait until next time to do that. Our time's running a little short this evening because we have communion. And since we're going to have a little celebration after this, because it's our one year anniversary, we'll come back and address that next Sunday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to come to a greater understanding of the role of adversity and testing in our own spiritual advance, to recognize that whatever adversity we each face, that it's not just by chance, it's not just something that happens willy-nilly, but that you ultimately are in control of our lives, that you are in control of the circumstances, and that you are the one who allows these various categories of suffering to come into our lives, specifically to test the doctrine in our souls, to give us the opportunity to apply what we've learned, that we can advance and grow in the spiritual life. Father, we also thank you for the salvation that you have given us, that it is a salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, that there is nothing that we could ever do to earn or deserve our salvation. There may be someone here this evening who is uncertain of their salvation or unsure of their eternal life. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right now, right where you sit, is to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that you've ever committed and that you ever will commit. It's not up to you. It's up to him. The issue before you is will you trust in his work or are you going to rely on your own work? When you put your faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation, at that instant you are regenerate. The Bible says you're born again. You receive a new life, an eternal life that can never be taken from you. You are declared just, righteous, not because of your work, but because of his work, because of his righteousness that is now given to you. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied this evening, that it might prepare us for our eternal role to rule and reign with you, not only in the coming kingdom, but also in eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.